Hey everybody, this is Daniel Patrick and this is episode number 130 of the Mandolins of Beer podcast brought to you in part by my favorite website, The Mandolin Cafe. Hope everybody's having themselves a fantastic week. It's Friday, April 1st. I was thinking of maybe doing an April Fool's Day joke and then I just decided uh, I didn't have anything funny enough to do. So so there's that. Man, I had a great week last week. I got to hang out with Joe K. Walsh, meet him in person for the first time, which was exciting in Savannah, and uh, hung out with him and Daryl Anger and got to see Mr. Sun live. Um, Woo! Holy moly. Incredible. As a matter of fact, on Thursday, I saw Balsam Range, Michael Cleveland, Jeremy Kittle, and Mr. Sun. It was incredible. And Mr. Sun's got an incredible new album coming out here, and we'll be doing an interview with that, hopefully with multiple players. I also got to meet uh, Mandolin, Mandolin's a beer listener, Trey. Trey, it was great to hang out with you for a little bit. Had a really good time. It was always cool to sit next to a fellow mandolin player watching incredible music take place. So, so that was exciting, man. Savannah, good times. Also, I want to thank newest patron, John Huber. John, thank you so much. I keep forgetting to talk about the Patreon, and I want to try to do these mandolin hangs, but it's really, really tough to do right now with, uh, I have eight gigs in three days coming up here this weekend, so uh, it's just it's tough to find any free time in, in recording these interviews and in doing these podcasts and editing them. It's definitely time-consuming, so I su- any support is great, obviously, so sharing it, leaving a review on anywhere where you listen to it, but if you can support the Patreon as well, that'd be fantastic. It really does help out, so thank you to John and all my other patrons. And also, thank you to Cheryl. Cheryl, she sent me a uh, check. She didn't want to do a, a monthly a monthly thing, so she, she did a check. So thank you so much and sent along a nice card as well. So thank you so much. I, I really, truly appreciate it, everybody. And I'm also very, very thankful for my sponsors. Um, so if you ever get a chance, shoot over to them and, and tell them mandolins and beer sent you. They are really, along with you people, they're what keeps this thing, this keeps this thing rolling. So I really, truly appreciate it. Peghead Nation, they've been here since episode two. They've got the best lineup of mandolin instructors out there. Um, the lessons are incredible. They also have them for guitar, banjo, fiddle, dobro, ukulele, and bass. I use it all the time. It's got Sharon Gilchrist, Joe K. Walsh, Mike Compton, John Reichman, Aaron Weinstein, Marla Fibish, Chad Manning. Courses have high-quality multi-angle video lessons, downloadable notation tab, play-along tracks, and plenty of tunes and songs to play. And that's no joke. I was just looking through Joe K. Walsh's um, Advancing Mandolinist, I believe was the course I was looking at, and holy cow, the amount of songs he's got on there is incredible. Uh, Join any of Peghead Nation's video courses now and get your first month for free. Just go to pegheadnation.com, use the promo code MANDOLINBEER, all one word, at checkout. Northfield Mandolins, let's build more than a mandolin together. Check out their website at northfieldmandolins.com or download their app at mandosummit.app for lots of special performance recordings, demonstrations, and special workshops. LS Mandolins, handcrafted mandolins designed and built in Austin, Texas. Ellis and Pava are just putting out some beautiful mandolins as well. As a matter of fact, there is a Pava available at Elderly.com. Elderly Instruments is the most trusted source for new used and vintage fretted instruments. We know how cool it is to be able to support the locally owned mom and pop businesses instead of supporting the big box stores. With Elderly Instruments, you're getting a place that's been family owned since 1972, located in Lansing, Michigan. But they ship worldwide. Shopping at Elderly Instruments doesn't mean a compromise in quality. They have a vast selection of acoustic and electric guitars, banjos, ukuleles, mandolins, and all of the accessories and books you might need. 
They have a world-renowned repair shop that sets up all their instruments, and perhaps most importantly, the down-to-earth and knowledgeable sales staff that can help you with anything you may need from advice on high-end vintage instruments right down to what picks you should buy. They're happy to help, and they're only a phone call or internet search away. Go to elderly.com or call them at 517-372-7880. And Roger Simonoff, his brand new book, The Art of Tap Tuning. It started shipping on March 28th. The book originally came out in 2006. It's been rewritten and expanded to add more information. It's got a 55-minute online video, which uh, Roger sent me. And it's really, really cool, especially when you get near the end and you actually watch him do this process. And by shaving the wood off, changing the pitch of the wood. Uh, it's incredible. Again, science. I am not your science guy. But you know who was? Lloyd Lore. And even in the Gibson brochure in 1924, said each top and back is played with a bow and struck with a hammer and pitched determined accurately. That's what Lloyd Lore bought to Gibson. And you know, if you listen to this podcast, all about the Lloyd Lore mandolin. So Roger Simonoff's new book, The Art of Tap Tuning, available now at SimonoffBooks.com. All right, let's get into the podcast with Andrew. He's got a brand new album coming out April 5th. The, the amount of new music coming out is staggering. This album is beautiful. And I want to thank Andrew. He's letting me play the entire track, I Miss You Already, at the end of this episode. So stay tuned for that. And let's get into the podcast with Andrew Collins. Cheers, everybody. Man, it is my pleasure to have back on the podcast uh, Andrew Collins. Andrew, how are how you doing? I'm great, Daniel. It's an honor to be back. Oh, I'll man. say that. <laughs> yeah, I um I was looking up earlier this morning. You were you were one of the your episode number twenty eight, and we I think it aired in late February of 2020 and little were we to know <laughs> yeah. what would happen in the, in, in the uh, time that has been since we've talked last. So um, uh, yeah, I'm glad to see you have a brand new album coming out called love away the hate. That is just beautiful. Oh my gosh. The Yeah. I'm, I'm excited. This is a, a, a new uh, route for me. Yeah, yeah. Project, uh, very, very different. It, uh, the biggest part being you did everything yourself. Yes, <laughs> that that definitely added to the workload. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you didn't, uh, you definitely didn't shortchange anybody on it. There is a lot of mandolin family instruments throughout the entire album. I mean, it's just, it's really lush sounding and just the way you've combined the voicings of, I mean, I think you might have been the first person that gave me that mandola fever <laughs> you know oh, i'm i'm glad it's it's a good fever to have um yeah it, yeah so like doing an album that is all musician has actually for like thick instrumental and like traditional type music i generally don't like that type of album <laughs> so trying to make an album like but i've written all this material over the last year and a half during all these lockdowns and isolation and it felt like my original goal was to just get all my you know i'm surrounded by an incredible community of musicians here and i was going to just like this is pretty traditional material i mean it's all original but traditional founding and i was going to just get put a band together and just like have it be this organic thing that comes out in a day or two in the studio and just see what happens but as it was approaching, I, the idea of like turning what would normally be what I consider a weakness into uh, strength and try to make an album that 
sounds like a group of people and doesn't have the doesn't sound like one person just showing what instruments they can play, but actually sounds like an ensemble. That was my main goal. And, you know, think of the most tasteful albums, in my opinion, that really number one is, right, is Church Street Blues. Oh. And, which is a totally different album than this album, but what I love so much about it, I mean, beyond it being Tony just being amazing, He's got these like earth shattering chops, yet he chooses to play the melody 90% of the time. And just like this, you know, still requiring his facility to be able to play it the way he does, but he just, he's always honoring the melody here. And then there's a few solos thrown in, which create some contrast to the album. But other than that, it's him playing super musically, at all costs. And so that was my main goal in this is to try and do an album all myself, but have it all be about the music, not being flashy, just being vibey and have the illusion of a band. So like really trying to keep dynamics in there and, and honor the melodies. And, you know, for the most part, there, there are a handful of solos throughout the album, but for the most part, it is melody and, and backup with like different textures. So it feels like it's evolving. And I don't know, you'll, the listeners will have to be a judge as to how, uh, successful I was, but that was the goal. <laughs> I think it's super successful. I mean, it definitely doesn't sound like, I mean, we, I, I mean, I, I, I'm not talking about, I guess, any major albums in particular, but you've definitely heard like demos where people, you know, like will send to you that play all the instruments maybe, or like when you're working on songs with friends and they send you instruments. And it's pretty obvious that somebody played all the instruments to me sometimes, especially demos. This album doesn't sound like that at all. You know, if, if you wouldn't have mentioned it in the liner notes and when, and when we first conversed, I would have never have guessed that it was the same person playing all the instruments. Well, that's mission accomplished then. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Now, did you approach that did you did you have a way to make that happen that you used or was it just Yeah. So so well, a combination. So like I've been recording other people and myself for over 15 years now and I've done a handful of demos and the thing that I think most not just one person but what a lot of people suffer with when they're multi-tracking like laying down parts and then building on it is they'll often start off by laying down like a rhythm guitar part and then and because the rhythm guitar isn't responding to anything it'll be like dynamically quite flat it'll just play the same rhythm throughout without the imagination of what's going on and then when you start when that's your foundation you start building on it it's very easy for the dynamics to be trapped in this like super even level thing and so that listen to my music I really love dynamics I like creating events that are a surprise and like having drops and rises and energy because that's what like a live experience that are my favorite live experiences evoke so oh I mean the first thing I did is it what I did differently from other albums is usually I go into an album like totally prepared with what the arrangements are and where the dynamic builds are going to be and where the harmonies are going to be and like the whole arrangement. And I may have solo sections marked off in my mind where I'll improvise here. The structure is usually like 
hardwired before I even get into the studio. Whereas with this one, I actually wanted it to be as organic as possible. So I purposely put no thought into the arrangements before starting to record and I'd lay down the melody first. And in, and in some cases, I didn't even know how many times the melody was going to be played, what the arrangement was going to be. And in my first sitting down of like, I, you know, set the tempo and have a click and my first, you know, three or four takes was me just kind of figuring out what the arrangement is going to be still not even thinking about what other instruments are going to be on there or, or anything, but just like what the structure of the tune is going to be, you know, if there is actually a solo and, and this sort of thing. And I just did it to a click, but still trying to imagine the dynamics that were going to occur. So, and if, you know, something, if I had a part that repeated at the end and there was going to be a build, then I would try to play it that way right from the beginning to the click with, with the melody. And then the decision that was made following that, if there's a harmony here or what instruments are going to be on, I was just kind of making those decisions as I was proceeding and just trusting my gut. So in many ways, even though this is like an album where all this like studio magic is being utilized by multi-tracking and everything. In a lot of ways, this is like an honest album than my other ones because there is no planning and it's just going with my feeling in the moment and trusting it and hoping it was going to work out. <laughs> so that actually helped, that helped spontaneity into the music, I think. So... That that was my that was my approach. Yeah, that's great. I mean, because it definitely sounds like the, the instruments are playing off of each other as opposed to one person pre-planning all the parts. You know, uh, for instance, like on the man, I'm, I use the mandola lot on this album, and in many cases, I'm imagining its role sort of like similar to like a claw hammer banjo role, where I know the mandolin is going to be chopping in certain spots or there's going to be other like instruments fulfilling certain roles, or I'm mean, at least when I was putting the mandola down, I was deciding, okay, I don't want to chop on the mandola because I want to create that, that space for the other instrument, or in this section, I'm going to chop to take over that role. So as laying down parts, it was defining itself as I was making these split decisions. So it was really like everything is a reaction to what has been put down already which is fun, you know, a really, a real revelatory experience. Whereas like anytime I've like really rehearsed up with a band and we know our parts and we know what it sounds like, it's not, it's not the same process of revealing what the tracks are going to sound like. Whereas with this, I had no idea. So it was always like, Oh, now, um, one of the things that I really noticed too, like you said, there's not so many solos, but I think the all the beautiful harmony parts that you've added into these songs, you don't even really necessarily miss solos <laughs> because the the arrangements are so are so excellent and, and and flushed out, man. Well, you know, I thank you by the way. Um, I I approach. I did this one album a number of years ago with this Celtic player, Brian Tanny. And um, we, it was basically, we played all these Irish and old time tunes and neither of us had ever played together previously. And what I discovered really 
quickly where in playing with um, like a Celtic musician was we almost never, when we were teaching each other tunes, we teach the melody. We almost never once discussed chords. And what I learned in, in his approach and, you know, in a lot of like old, uh, Celtic fiddle music is that the improvisation is often in the accompaniment, but not in the melody so much. And, and I kind of took a page out of that where, um, I, there was a harmony, you know, if I felt the feeling, I, I felt like a harmony would work in this spot. I would just kind of come up with a harmony that was close. I didn't even do what I normally do, which is like actually write it down and like be really precise about every note fitting the harmony that I want. Um, I, it was all feeling and by ear. And I've, I mean, I've made, I've done lots of twin mandolin harmonies in my life. So I can, you know, do it fairly accurately by ear, but I wasn't sweating the details how I normally would because I wanted it to be this like organic thing at the same time and was really trying to channel that vibe of having the textures evolve so that if the melody is remaining the same, then then there's still this sense of evolution and building and direction. And then when, you know, on the handful of tunes where there are solos, that's another contrast and surprising thing because mostly I'm playing with different timbres and textures of the different instruments. Yeah, it's just such a, it's really lush sounding. I, I don't want to, and you, and you know, when I lush, you know, I think sometimes people compare lush sounding with things that have tons of reverb, but it doesn't have that either. You know what I mean? It's just lush sounding with yeah. instrumentation and, and the voicings. They, they just pair, everything on their pairs beautifully yeah well i'm i'm lucky to have some beautiful instruments <laughs> which <laughs> I'm, I'm very fortunate to have i mean my mandolin is a Haydn, and my mandolin and mandocello are built by fletcher brock and i mean i i wouldn't call myself a fiddle player i work at playing the fiddle and i've got a really nice old french violin and um this beautiful B-18 Santa Cruz from, that I've had for 20 years now. That's uh, a, a very special guitar. So um, I'm very lucky. And, you know, I've, I've been recording acoustic instruments for a long time. So I've got a nice mic collection, you know, vintage mic collection and my full studio rig. So only needed three tracks per instrument. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. What if you had one mic to pick to mic to take to a studio session, what mic would you grab out of that locker of yours? So if there's one microphone in my collection that I think is the most versatile instrument, uh, particularly like string instrument, would be the Neumann Cam eighty four, the like the vintage version, not not to be confused with the one eighty four. Um, and I actually have two pairs of those. But on this recording I didn't even use them. I used um, pair of Shep B21s, which it said if I'm on any recordings, like if I'm recording an acoustic band, I reserve these for guitar always. They are just like a super special older from the 40s, um, beautiful uh, bottom end openness and like really clear high end. Um, and so I use a pair of those and a Neumann. 
KM64, which has the same capsule as a KM84, but is also the tube version predecessor. So I had a stereo pair and a central microphone. And I used those mics with my Millennia mic breeze on every instrument except fiddle. And on the fiddle, I used a combination of an R44 ribbon mic and a Neumann KM84. Oh, nice. What was the Shep's number on that? There's Shep's 221, actually, are mine, um, which are, they're pretty coveted. Shep's and Telefunken were basically the same company um, back in those days. So there's also a Telefunken 221B, which have these, they're small diaphragm um, uh, tube microphone with a tube in them. And they're kind of a, a, a pretty coveted microphone in the classical world as well. And honestly, like, it's interesting. My, my nicest microphones are microphones that are like 80 and 70 years old <laughs> <laughs> and they really don't make them like they used to. It's crazy. They, they, they really don't. I mean, there are boutique builders that make incredible sounding microphones today, but um, there, there really is something special about those old microphones. Yeah, when I recorded at um, Alan Bybee's, he had the uh, vintage KM84s and the Millennia preamp. I'm like, well, that's a pretty winning combination right there. <laughs> oh, yeah, you, you just can't go wrong with them. I mean, the KM84s, they, they, they're, and they really capture the full spectrum. And they have this high-end response where it's super clear on the, like the top end, but that is fluffy. Like it's, it's not harsh and shrill. It's got all the clarity with this like pleasant softness at the same time, where if you compared it to a cam 184, which is actually what I tour with. I all, like on stage, I'm almost always playing with a 184 in combination with the pickup. Um, and if you compared the two, the KM-184 actually basically has the same capsule, but if you look at the guts of the 184 versus the guts of an 84, the inside of the amp of the 84 is all this, like, wire-to-wire soldered electronics crammed in this little cylinder, whereas when you open up the 184, it's a single stamped chip that probably costs 25 cents to manufacture. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a very different microphone. And if you compare them in the studio, like it, it's still a nice microphone and you can get good results with it, but the high, it's very bright and it's just got a shrillness compared to the, to the 84. So all mandolin players, I mean, it's the standard microphone that mandolin players love, you know, and it's what he uses. Pieces on stage too, um, like all these guys. It's a real common one. But there's something I like about this 21B on the mandolin. But like I said, in most recordings, I actually will use that on the guitar anyway. So I'll be using the pair of 84s on the on my mandolin 90% of the time. But there's this this tonality that that the 221s get that make it sound a little bit drier for some reason. That's the, the word that comes to mind. I mean, these words all have almost no meaning when you're applying them to sound, but that's my <laughs> impression. This drier kind of like cool sound almost. 
where it brings uh, an element. Not that my mandolin ever sounds Monroe, but but it, it brings a, a slight element of that to my ear. So that's why I chose it for this. And I I, I knew like I'd be using it first choice for mando cello anyway and mandolas so so you know those are the three mics i had set up and i just that was my station for two and a half weeks of recording yeah, i was gonna say you did this album in just about three weeks um and you were saying you yeah yeah your wife took the kids to uh out, out of the country <laughs> to um so you could see so you could do this I mean, it wasn't so I could do it, but it created the opportunity. And, and um, you know, actually three weeks, to be honest, it was three weeks before I had it, like, between starting recording and mastering. And I got it pretty much done within three weeks. Long days, very long days. <laughs> yeah, I bet. But fun. And this is the first time you've done like an entire solo project like this. Yeah. And like, I took it to the nth degree. I did all the audio. I did all the photography in the album layout and even did the album design, which I don't normally do. I've done a couple in the past, but this was the the full, everything about this album is coming from, from my uh, heart. <laughs> <laughs> did you design that the the um heart out of strings i did yes that's awesome man that's a that's you a know great i, I didn't have cover. a plan for the artwork it you know it was so it just worked out so well so like before i started recording i was like well i'm gonna change i haven't changed the strings on any of these instruments for a year and a half so <laughs> i thought i'd start with a fresh batch of strings on everything and and I had this pile of strings sitting in front of me, and I took some pictures of just like the strings in a straight line, and like just a bundle of them. And and you know, I I knew the album was called Love Away to Hate. It's one of the tracks on the album, and a sentiment that I firmly believe in. this idea of doing an arts and crafts heart out of the strings, it worked out great. It actually came out really uh, better than I had hoped. And so there's this like theme of, and I like the, the symbolism of all the strings from these instruments being mashed together. Cause that's kind of symbolic of the album as well. So it, it really took another uh, symbol, symbolic meaning into the design. I love that one of the things that I was, you know, was discussed a lot and I thought about a lot during this pandemic is there's really going to be a lot of really creative music coming out um, from musicians who have been, you know, not able to tour. And I think your album really kind of captures a general hunk of the mood of all that time in the past two years. I think you did a great job right away from the, you know, from the title to the, the single, the, the revolution will not be televised. 
Wonderland that um, you took all that and really channeled it into this? Well, like I said, like I said, this album, surprisingly to me, is like, even though it's all instrumental in in strange way, is like one of the most personal albums I've ever created. And it's kind of funny that instrumental music could be that, <laughs> but it really is. Uh, yeah, like this is like my heart of and coming out of the last year and a half, two years, all this music was created in various moods of that, of this last two years. So it, yeah, it really, and that's, that is how I came to the decision to finally like to embrace doing it all myself and let it be just a reflection of me. Which, feel the heart yeah. in it, man. I Take mean, it or leave it. <laughs> yeah, no, it's beautiful. I mean, you can, you can definitely feel the heart in it. And it's almost, I mean, I, I don't want to say classical sounding because it doesn't sound, you know, I don't want people to be like, oh, I don't like classical music because I don't mean it like that. It's just, you know, like class, some classical pieces, especially like in movies, are made to move you and stir an emotion in you. And there's a lot of that in this album. Yeah. Oh, well, I'm, I'm glad that you feel that. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I hope, I always hope for that, but I'm, I'm glad that, that, um, it was received by someone. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Definitely was. Certainly a goal, but <laughs> not always easy to contrive. What was the first track that you wrote for this when you decided like, man, you know what? I'm going to, to do an album or was it just, you were suddenly realized you had all these songs? Well, I mean, all these tunes originated like as, as, the lockdowns, and I know we're going to talk about this, about the isolationist guide workshops, a lot, you know, previous to the to, um, coronavirus mayhem, I, I was on social media, and I still am, reluctantly, but I, at the time I was on it simply because the trio, and I, ha you know, you have to be at this time. So I didn't have, like, a super strong social media presence and as the workshops started I you know I started embracing it it was my method for getting the word out there and and I I know that you know if someone just continually puts out oh here's another event of mine for you to join you know people would fatigue of that rather quickly so I started just doing videos of me playing tunes and of the other participants playing tunes as a promotion and it actually got me really into I got back into photography and got into videography over this, over the last couple of years as well. So it, it started to become another passion of mine. And, um, I love, I did a handful early on, like just standard tunes, like even did a whiskey before breakfast and big mod and stuff like that. And I started leaning more and more to doing my original tunes, but so much of my original music, is designed for an ensemble. So I started writing tunes for these little videos, you know, not really even having a plan with them. So the first one that I think, the first one that I wrote, Love Away the Hate. And that, so that was like a year and a half ago. It was the first one um, in this repertoire. And, you know, as the year progressed, I, I had about three quarters 
of the album written before I even knew that I was going to do an album. And then I got around, uh, I guess, um, by the end of the summer, I had most of the repertoire and early fall, I started being like in September, I started thinking, Oh, I should actually just record an album of this stuff. And at that time it wasn't a plan to do it all myself far from it, but I had to write a couple more tunes. So I, you know, they all, all started in the fall of 20. And then throughout that, I started writing these tunes and purposely writing tunes that were melodic, not like super new acoustic requiring um, elaborate arrangements. And so that I could just record myself playing them and they'd sound full enough on just a solo mandolin. And, and then, yeah, they just kept coming. And a lot of these are, you know, a few of these I even wrote that I was planning on doing a video when I didn't have a tune yet. I was like, Oh, I got to write something today and I'll gonna, <laughs> I'm going to record it in an hour. And so, yeah, just letting stuff, sometimes it's an easier way to write than trying to like purposely force myself to write something. It's like, Oh, I, I need to write a pretty tune or I need to write a Mando tune. And I just decide what vibe and then oh, it turns into a tune. <laughs> <laughs> I also, um, I love the title, The Sounds Like Every Other Waltz. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, it's aptly named. <laughs> I wrote, I wrote that, this one sitting in the living room with my kids playing and I had the mandolin in my hand and this tune just kind of fell out. And there are different parts of it that rind, reminded me of like three different tunes. That <laughs> one was a tune that I'd written, but like these different phrases that there's nothing earth shatteringly new about this tune, um, except the fact that it actually is a new tune. It's certainly not earth shattering. And I, again, like I often try to play trio. Like I'm often trying to come up with something that is new and like pushing myself to create something new. And in this, I was just embracing it sounding like other tunes. And it's funny because on the drive home, I was, you know, just did a couple gigs and I was driving back with James, our bass player. And he put on this Irish album. I can't remember who it was. And this waltz came on that had like very similar phrases. One in the A part, one in the B part of this, of this waltz that is the sounds like every other waltz. <laughs> so it, I, I think it's aptly named. <laughs> oh, I can point great. to several tunes that it sounds, and it just, you know, it just popped out. And, you know, these are all standard sounds that make things sound like a style. So, I'll, I'll embrace it. Yeah. It didn't, it didn't, it wasn't written to sound like any particular tune, but 
sounds like a few of them to my ear. That's great. You know, the song 1973 also, to me, captures a bit of a 70s sort of vibe. It's got a almost kind of like a Pink Floydish vibe, especially that little descending doom, doom, doom. I'm like, man, that's that. This, yeah. This captures what a perfect title for an instrumental that sounds like that. <laughs> you know? It's funny. That's another example of a that I wrote. Hey, I was going to record it. I had the idea for it before I even sat down to write it, not knowing what it was going to, um, not even knowing what it was going to sound like. Um, uh, my buddy, who I play with in Foggy Hogtown Boys, and. I went to high school with him. He's the guy that introduced me to all this music in the first place. He he was born the same year as me, 1973. And he bought these matching t-shirts that had the year 1973 on it. And so I was like, oh, I got to write a tune for this. So the idea was I was going to play the tune on the video. And then at the end of it, I went down and revealed the shirt that says 1973 on it. But what I didn't notice until after I'd filmed the video, that microphone was actually right in front of the 1973. So you can't even totally read it. <laughs> but <laughs> it was, I, I thought it was funny anyway, so I let it go. <laughs> but yeah, I wrote that tune like before, maybe like a half hour before I even had the camera and everything set up before I started, before I hit record. And it just... Sometimes when you trust that something's going to materialize, it does. And that was a case where it did. And, and yeah, it's just kind of, I didn't intend it to be as melancholic a tune as it sounds, but um, it's still, yeah, to me, it sounds like 1973 and sounds like, um, you know, music that was coming around at that time to me anyway. Yeah, me too. I mean, I definitely picked up on it. So, yeah, and then, and, and then to um, as this wasn't enough of a, a a project of doing everything yourself, you also are putting putting out a transcription book for it. <laughs> yes, yes, which is quite a departure for me, and, and pretty exciting. First, to have an album that is my instrumental music. I mean, on most of my albums, the material. I wouldn't know how to jam it without having like discussions of how we're going to like structure it because a lot of tunes have like extra parts that don't repeat or like are, you know, heavily influenced by different styles of music. So you're not going to pull them out at a jam. Whereas this album is very oriented. Um, and I, I wrote this melodies and all the solos and mandola so it's actually a book with all these mandola parts because there's so little mandola repertoire out there and i did play a lot of these melodies and harmonies on the mandola on this album so it it um it's been a very interesting experience to transcribe my own playing also what i was surprised to find out was 
I thought that, you know, I, I like cross picking and I like the use of open strings to make the mandolin sound a little bigger. You know, if you're just playing straight eighth note melodies that are like, um, what a chromatic banjo player would call like chromatic style where you're a lot of it's on one string at a time. It, the mandolin doesn't have a chance to ring on top of its notes. Whereas when like Ely would incorporate all these open strings within the melody to make the mandolin sound ringer. So I've, I've got a lot of like little cross picking and, and all these little variations that when I was, I was even patterns were going to be like super repetitive but when it came time to transcribe what I actually did and the solos, I was shocked. It felt like I was like transcribed. I had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> Again, it was just by feel. And so it was almost like learning another mandolin players. Like it, because I didn't work these up in advance. I just put the microphones up and played until I liked where it went until I got takes that I liked. And then moved on to other parts. So going back and relearning, it's like, oh, whoa, that's, that's <laughs> I like it, but <laughs> yeah. boy, is that more complicated than I realized? And then some, and, and I mean, not that it's all complicated. In fact, like I said, it's, most of it is way more accessible than a lot of other stuff. So having a full book of this stuff, hopefully, you know, hopefully you'll get some mandolin players playing some of these tunes. There are a few that I think would would um, be really good old time or like just bluegrass jam type tunes so fingers crossed yeah not many jam busters on this one these are all really accessible for a jam situation you know like something you could show somebody who might not have heard it you know right away and be like hey let's just check this melody out you know yeah i i hope so i hope so. i mean I like it to learn it so that's the first goal <laughs> <laughs> and it comes out april 5th right the book and the album that's right that's right and anyone that buys the book gets a download as well. So if they they like the physical, but they also want to be able to like just print out a page here or there, then that will be possible. Well, now we got to talk a little bit about um, the, the the isolationist guide to mandolin that you put together. This was just what a great way to keep the mandolin out there during the uh, the pandemic, and what a way to involve some of the best players in the business i mean man how first off how did you come up with the idea t to do this and and then you know i mean how much work was it to do <laughs> uh surprisingly a lot <laughs> so first how did i come up with the idea i i mean every now and then i have an idea that is a good idea even though you don't even feel like you should like you knew it was a good idea. You just tried it. And when the lockdowns first happened, so many musicians I know and don't know, um, started doing these like live streams with their iPhone out of their living room. And honestly, to me, not a very compelling, like exciting to get brought into the living rooms of people whose music I admire. And there's merit to that. But very uncompelling for me to imagine myself something like that. And also at the time I, there was a, a short period like 10 years ago where I did a weekly gig for about six months solo. Cause I wanted to learn the craft of 
solo. But that's not what I do. You know, like I depend on an ensemble to to collaborate with and and um, create these musical moments. So the idea of doing like a live stream solo with my iPhone was really not for me. And so I was trying to think of something that would be compelling to me. And the idea of, of like bluegrass festival style workshop where, you know, you get a bunch of mandolin players on stage and they perform a couple tunes each and then everyone, and then they just open it up to answering questions. So on the, from the musician's perspective, there, there isn't a lot of prep required because all they have to do is have two tunes prepared. And from the audience's perspective, it's like this intimate opportunity to ask a question and hear the different perspectives of, you know, presumably all your different heroes that are involved in the workshop. So as someone who loves uh, getting to insights of my heroes about different, every different aspects of mandolin. I had this idea to, to give it a try. And, and my first one, I, I elicited um, the participation of, cl- of, you know, close musical friends of mine that, you know, David Benedict and Joe Walsh and Adrian Gross from Slocan Ramblers were the, were on the first isolationist guide to mandolin. And, you know, I've been one to pattern an online existence after it would be David Benedict. I mean, the guy's super cutting edge on everything having to do with and online content. Oh, he's unbelievable. And um, he's unbelievable. I mean, he's just on, on every level. He's got a great sense of aesthetics. He's such an incredible player. He brought in the talents of the mandolin world to bolster, um, you know, not just his product in quotations, but also just to bring the music of all these incredible players to the mandolin world. So, you know, there was some, probably some inspiration from him. And I just happened to come up with this idea that was just really successful first one I had those guys and the enrollment was far surpassed my expectations and then the next one I decided so if I'm going to continue doing this I should come up with themes to differentiate them so I did these stylistic themes and the next one was the isolationist guide to bluegrass mandolin and had Reichman and Compton and Chris Henry and it continued on through different styles I think I had a youngins one with Dominic Leslie and Charlotte Karavik and, um, and Tristan Scroggins. Um, and, uh, you know, for me as someone who loves the acoustic so much and is a devotee to playing it, um, the, one of the highlights, I mean, there's so many highlights, but obviously having the new acoustic one with Jacob Jolliffe and Matt Flinner and, and dog, was uh, a shock to be able to get. I mean, I'd, I'd already become friends with Jacob and had taught at camp with Flinner. So, I mean, I was super thrilled and chuffed that they um, were willing to be involved. But having Grisman, you know, I sent him an email not expecting 
a response even the same day he responded saying, yeah, that sounds great. I'm into it. And it was, yeah, it was pretty exciting. That's, that was, that was and an amazing one. So such a highlight. Yeah. We've got a really great Grisman story out of this actually. Oh, let's hear it. A sign when you've made, when you've made it as a mandolinist. So a day after the workshop, I get a phone call. And I was just in the middle of putting my kids to bed. So I, I couldn't answer at that moment. I'm like, well, I'm getting a phone call from Brisbane after, after we're done. What a, what a shock. And, oh, I can't wait to get back to him. Anyhow, I put my, you know, I was reading my daughter's story and put her to bed. And then 20 minutes later, I go to check the message that he left. And it was a butt dial. <laughs> where he was playing mandolin for about like a minute and a half. Oh, whoa. Some jazzy sort of mandolin on that style to me. And the, the, you know, he put down the mandolin and the message continued for like another minute and a half. He didn't realize until like I, I told him, Hey, you butt dialed me. <laughs> but it's, uh, definitely one of the highlights of my musical career. <laughs> <laughs> there are not a lot of people who could say they got a butt dial from David Grisman. No, no, and I, honestly, there, there's possibly no, nothing that he could do that would would outdo that personnel reach out and touch someone. <laughs> 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 did you um i know you've archived because you also did some workshops on your own i took part in the harmony one that you did which was incredible and is like and, and those are those are available in archives that harmony one that you did really unlocked something for me with you know like how to approach learning harmony parts to songs especially even kind of like on the fly um so I'd, first off i'd recommend anybody to go to your website which is andrewcollinstrio.com, and you can get the past workshops. You can order those. Yeah, they're all archived. So the way I did the, the group ones was that those were like isolation, and and I just divvied it up amongst the four of us. And those, I mean, it was a lot of work to organize, and I was doing them every other week, so they it kept me busy, and. And then near the end of the summer of 2020, I was like, well, I actually really love teaching one, like teaching classes, teaching workshops to classes. And I thought I'd give that a try. And again, the response was, I, I built up obviously a following because of having all these incredible guests. And so I started doing these one-off workshops and as other mandolinists, you know, things were opening up in different parts of the world. So it was, getting harder to schedule um, workshops, the, the festival style. So I started focusing on the isolationist guide to harmony and the isolationist guide to improv. So now I've got about 15 two-hour workshops with handouts and the full two-hour workshop available. And, and yeah, they're still available on my website. And you can go and check out all the different, um, all the different topics. And it's, I've always loved to sing. So it was, oh, one of my, one of my headphones just died. <laughs> I've always loved teaching classes. So, um, 
Yeah, I've. It's funny. My wife, previous to the coronavirus, she's always she's always been like, you know, you should do a write a book or something. You know, you teach at so many camps, you should have some materials. I'm like, ah, oh, people don't want books now. They all, you know, it's I I teach camps like. You know, they get all my handouts. Anyhow, in the, in what has ensued in the last year and a half is now I've got a book and I've got 15 two-hour workshops that people can <laughs> right. partake in. So I've got lots of instructional <laughs> material. She, she was ahead of the curve. Yeah, no doubt, right? Yeah. I um Yeah, again, that Harmony one was great. Yeah, I, I as a mandolinist, like, I started playing... Um, I started playing a little later than the average mandolinist. And I think when asked what my, what my greatest strength is as a mandolinist or as a musician, I, I'd say problem solving is like <laughs> kind of my greatest strength. Yeah. I got, I'm, I'm good at, at figuring out ways to identify a weakness and figure out ways to to fix it and and to approach working on it. And I think it really translates into these workshops in that I'm I've never been the type of teacher that will give people just tunes. I really like giving approaches to learning. So if we're talking about learning tunes, then I'll give you tunes, but I'll also teach the method for learning. And, and so it's been really fun to explore all these different topics that, um, I've never done. Like, you know, when I teach at camps, I've kind of taught the same five to 10 different classes at all the camps that I teach at, because it's, um, you know, a learning method. So it's been really valuable to go and dig deeper into all these different, um, facets. Like there's one on playing in minor keys. There's one on, um, on bluegrass specifically and one on rhythm playing and one on backup and embellishment. So there's, there's all different facets that, and, and they're all very much method based and not like just teaching how to do a thing. You know, I teach a lot of how to do things using those as analogies, but yeah. So um, for those that like methods, some of these workshops might be for you. <laughs> and uh, they're two hours long and they're, they're only $25. I mean, geez, a, a private lesson with somebody for two hours is going to run you 80 to $160. So you can't really beat that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's definitely good value for if you want, like, and I honestly think that any one of these workshops can be material that you work on for, I mean, there's some stuff that I'm teaching in that, that is just part of how I work. So it, I still will be working on many of these ideas until I stop working on mandolin altogether. Like I went to jazz school for two years and in that two years I learned there's no way I could internalize the material that I was given in two years. It'll take, if I were just working on the, on what I was taught in jazz school still, I'd still have a lifetime of stuff to work on. So that, and that's really what I like, the way I like to teach. I really like teaching things that are approaches to learning that you can take into other facets and other instruments, other facets of life. 
um, you know, I've, I've got all kinds of interests. And when I get into something, I get really focused on it. You know, there was a number of years where I recently, where I got really into playing pool and I was practicing like four or five hours a day. Get out Not of here, really? Skill that is, oh yeah. Yeah. I was very, and it was at a time where I wasn't super in, I was a little burnt out with music um, in that it's my livelihood as well as a passion. And sometimes when something's your livelihood, the livelihood side of it overtakes the passion part of it. And I got away from the excitement of practicing because it was, you know, everything was connected to work. And, and I got into pool with my wife and I'd played pool a number of times in my life. And, you know, I thought I was really good when I was a kid and, you know, compared (laughs) to the average person I was, but when I got really into it, I realized, oh, there's this whole world. And I got a pool table in my studio, like a tournament-sized pool table, and was doing drills and literally reworking my technique and stroke, just like I would do with the mandolin, and I had done with the mandolin. And going back to playing pool after spending 15 to 20 years of playing mandolin, I had all these skills of like learning skills that I didn't have when I first started playing pool. So applying that to pool, I could see the, the improvement really quickly. Not that there's like, there's an infinite, uh, an infinite amount of learning to be done, but still the progress was quick and it really re-inspired my joy of just learning. And in this time, I still like, Honestly, my mandolin playing, because I was spending so much time playing pool, actually, so much of my spare time playing pool, my mandolin playing was actually starting to suffer. Oh. You know, I wasn't getting in better and not practicing. And I got hired to do this gig with this musical hero of mine here in Canada, this guy named Kevin Bright, who's amazing any instrument with strings. And he's a ridiculously good mandolin player, but such non bluegrass style. So he does all this like pick stuff that no bluegrasser would do. Cause like pick direction. He does all these sweeps, up sweeps, down sweeps, triplets that involve like these weird pick techniques, like really monstrous player, but so not bluegrassy. And to learn his material, I had to, and it was a killer band that he put together to perform this album called Ernesto and Delilah. It was me Jesse Cobb and Adrian Gross. Wow. Uh, and um, yeah, like a pretty stellar and Kevin, who's this monster and Kevin actually played exclusively Mando cello and his freedom on Mando cello is like, is like hearing uh, Mike Marshall on mandolin, you wow. know, the freedom that, that Kevin has on Mando cello. He's got these giant hands and just this bizarre technique that is so inspiring. So anyhow, I, I had to learn stuff that I'd never tried playing before on mandolin, really outside of most mandolinists' wheelhouses. And it reignited this love and passion for mandolin that preceded the album, and it was good. And it kind of reinvigorated. Slowly, I, I lost interest in, in working on pool again. And <laughs> all that passion went right back into music again. And, and this is like eight, nine years ago now. And I still 
have that excitement that was re-inspired by playing pool. So sometimes taking, getting away from mandolin can actually re-inspire mandolin. That was the case for me. Do you have like a favorite book uh, as far as like learning or habits or anything like that? I I seem to get a vibe that like maybe you would also uh, read a lot of books possibly, you know, kind of like Nate Lee's got a big section on his website and David Benedict has a big thing with the atomic habits he talked about. Is there anything that you ever read that it's really stuck with you as far as stuff like that? Absolutely. Um, And and this, I read this book before I even started playing mandolin a couple years before it. It was at a time that I was living as a ski bum in Whistler. And um, I read this book called by a guy named Timothy Galway called the inner game of tennis. And he's got an inner game of golf and an inner game of music. Um, and it's just using tennis as the analogy, the inner game of tennis does. Um, I've looked at the inner game of music and actually didn't find it as compelling as the inner game of tennis now. And his whole approach, um, is, you know, and I'll use tennis as the analogy because that's what he's using is often people will measure their results in success and failure. So for instance, if they're working on their, their, you know, forehand ground stroke to get specific, they will, if they hit the ball out or they hit it in the net, they're bummed, you know, Oh, I hit the ball out. It wasn't a good shot. And what his approach is, you're looking for feedback from everything. So instead of being like, Oh, I hit the ball in the net. That's a bad thing. You're saying you're looking for feedback. So why did the ball go in the net? And then you start looking for answers. Like maybe if I open my racket face, or maybe if I swing the racket, brush up on the ball more, or like all these different things that could be solutions to that. And then you try to do that thing and see what the result is. So instead of having like success and failure, you're always getting feedback, which is only positive. Feedback is only good. So hitting the ball in the net isn't a bad thing. It's saying that something in the mechanics isn't correct or isn't optimal, and there can be something changed to improve that. So you're always searching for responses based on the feedback that you're given from your results and it totally changes the philosophy of practice. I, I think it um, is a very useful book and taught me a, a phrase. I mean, this phrase doesn't come out of the book, but it, it's the very first thing I, I say when I'm teaching a class is you can't get better at something without being bad at it. If you, if you can't do it already, you need to go through being bad at something. So you need to embrace sucking to get better. So if you want to learn to improvise, the only way to get there is to be bad at it before you can be good. So if you're avoiding improvising because you want to be better at it and you don't want to reveal that to other people, you are depriving yourself of the opportunities required to get better. So you need to embrace that sucking and get over it. You know, if you want to learn how to play up the neck, the only way to do it 
is to go from being bad at it to being good. You can't just skip over that part. <laughs> right. So, um, <laughs> and, and honestly, that's what most, why most people do not progress past a certain point. You know, when I teach classes, I almost always have, you know, particularly when they're in person, I'll almost have, always have a couple students who have a block describe their block to me and give me the reason for them having the block. Like, oh, I can't play chop chords because my hand's too small. So as a result, they will never try to play chop chords and, and never discover that your hand changes and stretches. And by practicing to do it, you will get closer until you can eventually do it. And if you never try, then you've got this reinforced, I'll never be able to do this and you're proving yourself right by not trying to do it. <laughs> so um, it's an interesting philosophy that people have when they tell you why they can't do something and they use it as a reason to never even try to do it. So they're constantly proving themselves correct that they can't do it rather than just saying, like, I've seen kids with tiny hands play chop chords. Right. I've seen, you know... I've seen people, you know, Django Reinhardt lost the use of two of his fingers, basically, and still managed to become an innovator in a whole style of playing guitar. He didn't let that handicap prevent him. He's just like, I'm going to work around it, and it'll become a strength. And now there are people who think that to play like Django Reinhardt, you can't use your ring finger and pinky rather than see that, oh, now I've got the advantage of having more fingers to use. Like there are literally people that have, have taped their ring finger and pinky because Django did it that way. You know, which is fascinating. Yeah. Love Away the Hate comes out April 5th. Uh, it's so good. I'm excited for people to hear the whole thing. Um, I've been lucky enough to hear the whole thing multiple times now. And where's the best place for people to get them? This is a big thing for me recently. I got to hear a I heard got to hear I heard a podcast with John Mayer and Corey Wong, who um, both two talented yeah. guitar players. And it was really interesting to them this whole album sale thing. You know, again like Spotify, great. Just go any support is great. But they both had a great point. It's like you know they only put out an album every couple of years. Well, except Corey Wong who puts them out like. <laughs> every three months it seems but if just every yeah. person who followed them on instagram or every person who followed them on facebook just bought the one album for 10 or 15 dollars and that was it for two years what a huge difference it makes yeah. for the artist absolutely absolutely now i i will be painfully honest with you in that um online or in-store sales they've never been a huge part of my income flow. <laughs> I mean, I'd love it. I'd love it to be. Um, most of my sales have always been off stage or at camps and stuff. So if you want to know the place that I'd like you to get the music from most, yes. absolutely come to my website. Perfect. Yes. <laughs> com. You can buy a download. You can buy a, the physical copy. Um, I mean, I still like, physical, tangible things, personally. Um, and it certainly is a nice support to me. Um, the streaming thing, 
I stream stuff on Apple Music or Spotify or whatever. Um, I, if you want to help support me, by all means, come to my website. I would love people to listen to the music and enjoy the music. I do work hard at, at being able to perform and be able to make a livelihood through this. So absolutely any support's appreciated. But I, you know, I would love people to listen to the music. And I mean, the biggest honor for me is when people learn my music. So anyone learning any of my tunes is like a greater accomplishment because then, you know, just listening to it because it means they've actually not only chosen to um, intake music which is a pretty passive thing a wonderful thing but you know more passive than actually going to the effort of learning one of my tunes oh that that warms my heart more than anything ever so um but but you know it's up to me as the artist to be compelling enough to draw that out of people so hopefully this will be effective in that yeah and if you want to learn the songs the book available too april 5th Yes, that's right. That's right. I've I've gone to the effort of making it easier to learn my (laughs) tunes by transcribing them. (laughs) So if you like that, and and I do hope that people that are looking for some uh, some instructional content, I I there's so many great instructors out there. I think that I have a um, a unique method. So if you're looking to try out. A, a teaching method that you haven't experienced. You know, things are well written out in handouts and I think they're well explained in the workshops. So I hope people will check that out as well. Awesome, man. Well, thank you for doing the podcast again. I really appreciate it. And uh, congratulations on well, the beautiful thank- new album. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me back. It's a, an honor. Oh. You do great work. Oh, thanks, man. I appreciate that. All right, thank you so much to Andrew for doing this episode. And as a bonus here, as I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, Andrew was kind enough to let me add I Miss You Already in its entirety at the end of this podcast. So here it is, I Miss You Already. This album is available April 5th. AndrewCollinsTrio.com is where I recommend you get it, and the book will be available that day as well. Cheers, everybody. Enjoy. Enjoy. 